Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Seb and I were joined today by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, Arsenal correspondents for The Athletic. And today's episode is aptly named, What is going on at Arsenal Football Club? Seb, what is going on at Arsenal Football Club and what do we talk about in short form, please? All sorts. We um, we started with a bit on Matteo Guendouzi and the saga around him. Um, we talked about Bakayo Saka's rise into the first team. We um, dabbled with recruitment, talked about Raul Sanyihi. Um, we even touched on William Saliba um, and his future in the first team and what he will bring to their defence in the long term. Mm. Yes, the hottest and warmest topics of the day. Uh, I would like to say at this point that the Arsenal coverage uh, on The Athletic from James, Amy and also David Ornstein is utterly fantastic. I think it's one of the best covered clubs. Uh, every time I read something that those guys have written, I think it's, it's fantastic. So if you are an Arsenal supporter and you are not signed up, you can get a 30-day free trial to go and see for yourselves. Marvel at the wonder that is the Arsenal coverage. Uh, and you can do that by going to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's a 30-day free trial. Anyway, uh, without further ado, we shall leave you in the warm hands and the cool embraces of Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Okay, let's start uh, by talking about Matteo Genduzzi because he's he's had issues with Mikel Arteta in the past, primarily during warm weather training in Dubai, after which he was obviously forgiven and reintegrated. Firstly, I wanted to ask what those issues were. And then secondly, I would ask about the latest episode, um, which has flared up following that defeat to, to Brighton and the incident involving Neil Mopé. So perhaps, James, we could start with you there. Yeah, I mean, in the case of Genduzzi, I think it is, uh, you know, the consequence of lots of different incidents. I mean, one that was quite high profile and that was heavily reported by France Football the other day uh, was the one that happened in the winter training camp in Dubai. Uh, they reported that he got into an altercation with Socrates, uh, which continued at the hotel. Certainly, David Ornstein reported at the time on on sort of fractious scenes between Arteta and Genduzzi. And, you know, that was a problem. But that time round, he missed one game. This time round, I think, you know, we're well past that. I think it's four or five games he's already missed and there's going to be plenty more. He's training alone with a fitness coach. The door, you know, if not quite shut, is definitely on the way to closing for Matteo Ganduzzi. And I think after the Brighton match, you know, the club were not entirely happy with his conduct. He was given an opportunity to meet with members of the club hierarchy, including Arteta, the manager and the technical director, Edu, and he did not impress in that meeting. He did not give Arteta what he was looking for. And consequently, he kind of finds himself on the outside looking in. And I think I think it's a shame, to be honest with you, because you've got a talented player there, a promising young player who you want to see contributing to the team in this period of the season, particularly at a time when there's so many games, so much opportunity for rotation. And things away from football are preventing him from doing that and you do look at it and sort of think I think the writing is on the wall for him now at Arsenal. James this is one of those situations where the club um, are willing to kind of sacrifice him for the sake of um, their new culture or the culture they aspire to, to create at the club. Yes I think that's right and I think Mikel Arteta he made it very clear on day one when he came in there were certain non-negotiables as he calls them that were kind of 
prerequisites if you wanted to be an Arsenal player. And we all wondered who might be the full guy. It was kind of inevitable that certain players would would fail to meet those demands. And what's been really interesting, I think, from Arteta is that in some ways he's used those as a kind of motivational thing. There have been times where it looked like Danny Ceballos had fallen foul of Arteta's strict prerequisites or Ainsley Maitland-Niles, but they've both come back into contention and they've done that through showing extraordinary work rate, through showing fantastic commitment to the cause, and they've impressed him. They've won him round. When Arteta is angry at someone, it's usually a case of him throwing down a gauntlet, and what he's looking for is the right response. And what seems clear in this instance is that Ganduzi hasn't given the right response, not what Arteta's been looking for at all. And I do wonder to an extent if there may be an element of this which suits Arsenal in a transfer window coming up in which they probably need to move somebody on to facilitate buying players where exchange deals are being talked about as a possibility having a player who's a valuable asset in Genduzi who you could kind of leverage in that market might actually prove quite beneficial Amy what do you make of him as a player every time I watch him I find him quite conflicting because you see the talent and then also at the same time, you always see the, the ill discipline in his pressing. He's quite a wild sort of midfielder. Have I got that right? It's an interesting observation. I think that um, because of his youthfulness and because of his path, uh, not necessarily coming through in a totally elite youth programme, ending up in, in, in L'Oreal playing for a smaller club in France uh, before he was suddenly plucked into you know this different spotlight at Arsenal. He's always been someone that's played with a lot of uh, character and charisma as part of his game and a lot of energy and emotion. And I think that um, the challenge always was how to harness that. And I think when you think of all the great players of the past who have had those kind of volatile, sometimes personalities, if you can use those characteristics, that sometimes maketh the player. But you've got to, it's a, it's a, it's a very fine line, isn't it? And I suspect that it looks like Arteta um, has taken a really hard line on that. And he obviously has his reasons because, as James mentioned, on other occasions, he's been willing to sort of throw down that challenge and then welcome someone back and, and actually lavish them with a lot of praise and reward them for responding so well. I was interested by uh, somebody on Twitter mentioned as regards Gendizi and his uh, sort of apology when he was, or non-apology, supposedly when he was called in to explain what's been going on and comparing that to Granite Xhaka. And when you think about Granite Xhaka's misdemeanor earlier on in the season where he fell foul of a lot of people's expectations, possibly even his own, in quite a dramatic way, he was allowed back into the fold and very much supported, even though he absolutely didn't say sorry when you look back at, mm. at that episode uh granite had things to say about it at the time a little bit after and a, a few weeks down the line when he was back in the team and and he felt like he wanted to get a bit off his chest but he made it very clear that he did what he did and he he was never really going to apologize for that in the way that some people demanded and expected and there is always a way back i think but that way back has to come because all parties really want it. And it just feels in this case that they don't. And maybe there's something about the way Genduzi plays that is allowing Arteta to feel, yes, he's one I will sacrifice to get a different kind of player. And that 
he's so off the cuff, maybe there's something about him where he thinks he's not listening. Arteta likes players, he's shown so far anyway, that he's responded very well to the players who listen to him. Uh, he's rewarded the players who listen to him and who try to do the things that he wants to do. And that that's why perhaps the situation is where it is. Let's say, for example, that there is no way back for, for Gendouzi at this point. James, I mean, with his volatile personality, if we can call it that, and maybe a growing reputation for, for being difficult, is he guaranteed a sideways move to a similar sized club? Or, or what, what, what do you see in his future? It's a good question because these, you know, these kinds of problems happen when a player is young, but it, it is not the first time this has happened with Gendouzi. And I do think there will be enough takers for him to get a, a decent move. I mean, the point Amy makes about him, he, he's quite an unstructured player and he flourishes in situations that are unstructured. And if there's anything Mikel Arteta is trying to do at the moment, it's bring structure into this Arsenal team. But I do think that that's why Emery... Uh, sorry, Gendouzi rather, shone often in a new Emery team because amidst the, the chaos and the maelstrom of that midfield, when he was kind of playing on instinct, he looked very, very good. I, I really think there is a an excellent player in there. If you look across Europe for midfielders of his age, playing the number of minutes he has played in a top league, there aren't too many to compare. In that particular part of the pitch, what he's done at his age is actually relatively extraordinary and I think some of the reason that he's a little bit deceptive as a player is there's not necessarily one skill or attribute in which he particularly excels but I think that could also be a strength you know potentially he could be a, a very complete midfield player so I think if there's a coach who uh, or a club maybe is the best way to put it who's prepared to take that gamble they could have a, a really good player there I mean there's always been talk about Paris Saint-Germain potentially being interested. He started out with them before leaving to join Lorient because he felt he wasn't getting enough opportunities at academy level. Uh, you know, with things like domestic quotas in European competitions, French players are always going to be attractive to someone like PSG. So I think that's a possibility. There's also been mention of Atletico Madrid, I think, in the Spanish press. I mean, if anyone can get hold of him, I guess it would be Simeone. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think there will. <laughs> I do think there will be takers for him. I'd want to see that, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, if, 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 his, if his passion and his personality can be properly uh, channeled, I do think there is something there to work with. I just think in Arsenal's situation, clearly he's not a fit right now. And that's OK. You know, Mikel Arteta's trying to do something very specific with this team and with this club. And there are always going to be people who are kind of not necessarily made examples of, but who, who don't toe the line. And when that happens, it's kind of almost important for Arteta's authority that the club back him and, and do the right thing by the manager. It's interesting that there might just not be the right fit there because and this is not coming from an expert at all. But when I watch Gendouzi play in that Arsenal team, I think it, maybe it's to do with, with his height, right? But he has such a presence in the middle of the park. He looks really composed. He looks kind of angry and mean at times and like a player that you don't want to mess with uh, he's got that you know ability with the to control the ball in, in tight spaces mm. he looks like uh, he looks I don't know five years older in terms of maturity in some senses than, than than he is in age and then I suppose other aspects of his his personality maybe seem more more immature but do, do, do that vision that I'm trying to convey very poorly well, do you see that too if I could just jump in I mean a player that he was compared to quite frequently in France was Adrian Rabiot and what he shares with Rabiot I guess is a, a bit of a reputation as a bit of a troublemaker 
But yeah. I mean, it's not currently prevented Rabio joining Juventus and and being relatively successful there and being a highly regarded player. I mean, I, I do think there is a trajectory for Gendouzi where. You know, this is seen as a kind of a, a blip on an otherwise positive career. But it, I have to sort of put my Arsenal hat on. It's just frustrating because I think, really, he must surely see that what he's be, what's happening here is Arteta is testing him. He's giving him a test, and yeah. and it's quite easy to kind of bite the bullet and say, "All right, boss, I got it wrong. Uh, I'm going to knuckle down." And I kind of find it surprising and almost a bit shocking that he's not taken that choice. I wonder if there's um, some uh, responsibility, if that's the right word, or some attention that you can put here on his advisors. You know, he's mm, a young guy, yeah. and if he is being tested, it's a time like this where if you are advised very well, then maybe you, you know, you do have a different uh, attitude. And actually, you know, but we talk about him, he is a, quite a compelling player and compelling personalities. There aren't that many pers- big personalities that you get coming through in football. I mean, we've bemoaned that for years in many ways. And the Arsenal's midfield, to an extent, almost more than any other part of the pitch, is so up for grabs. Like, there is a position there. It's been crying out for somebody, for a player to be dominant in that midfield for really a very long time, to be the guy that you really want, that you look to in that midfield. And there's an opportunity there. And... I, I agree with James. I think it's a bit of a pity if it if it is a situation that's irretrievable. Even though probably he and the club will be will find a way to use it to their advantage and move on. But I mean, just thinking back to earlier in the season, there were a couple of games. So the, the home game against Tottenham, for example. Mm. So obviously, it's not a game you ever want to lose. Uh, Arsenal trailing and not you know not really managing to get themselves. And he almost single handedly, as one of the youngest players on the pitch, pulled that team back into the game. There was that real kind of souped up determination where he got hold of the ball and he just went. He just drove at them until something happened. And he changed the game just by force of personality on the pitch, in a way. And that was where you see that spark and you think there really is something there. And I guess it'd be interesting to look back in a year or two years or five years. and th- I can't really predict where this guy's going, in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. So it could go in all sorts of directions, his career. And I hope for his sake that it goes in the way that makes the best of him. And again, you sometimes look at advisors and think, do your job here. Do your job for your player. Make sure that he makes the best of it of what he's got. I think that advisor's point is really key. And to draw a uh, cultural comparison, I'd like to say that I've been re-watching Game of Thrones recently. Uh, Daenerys Stormborn, of course. She's in Marine. She's talking about uh, executing all of the masters, kill the masters, etc. Barrison Selby, Jorah Mormont, they say, hey, 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 no, no, let's, uh, let's practice justice here. Maybe there's some mercy involved. And it all works out well, as we know. But I think we want to talk about uh, Bokeh Osaka. Is that right, Seb? It is. That's Let me a just stress it that. <laughs> there was there was no Game of Thrones segment on our plan. Just to make that absolutely clear to anyone listening, <laughs> that isn't that's an ad lib. I would like um, to weave that in where possible, though, because that is the only thing I'm doing other than podcasting. Okay, okay. Well, that's that's nice and out in the open. That feels like something that we should have made public. Excellent. On Saka, Amy, I am. Um, I think I'm. I'm probably not alone in in being in having underestimated him because up until a few weeks ago, I wasn't particularly enthused by him as a prospect. He was a um, a good young player 
but someone who over the last few weeks, um, you just think, goodness, you're in the conversation with all those sort of super talented wide forwards that England have in their gen- in this generation. Would um would you be able to tell us a little bit about his background? Because you wrote a, an excellent uh, long form article about his um his his rise through the game. I think his background in many ways is is not uncommon in uh, academy football these days. He was uh, a talented boy who was spotted. Uh, at a young age and joined Arsenal's Hale End Academy uh, at what they call the pre-academy stage. You can't normally be signed officially by any academy until the under nine level. Prior to that, and you see this, it's quite weird actually, uh, uh, in some very, very talented young players or some of those who, um, let's just say their parents take an, an interest in their child's development as a sort of project where you know becoming a professional footballer is everything and you see sometimes see these five six year olds who get uh, dropped around um from club to club on different days of the week after school or or whatever it might be so maybe one one night a week there at qpr and another night there at tottenham and another night there at west ham and then they go to chelsea it's really quite bizarre existence i think sometimes for very young kids but they don't have to make any commitment to anyone until under nines. Uh, Saka was with Arsenal from about the age of eight. And he came from the other side of London. He came from West London. So it was quite a long journey. And uh, every day that they were required at training, which is usually sort of three to four times a week, including match days, his dad would pick him up and drive him around, be often an hour and a half journey each way. Saka often slept in the car, I think. You know, these are the sort of real life stories, if you like, of these mm-hmm. kids, uh, all these, you know, Greenwoods, Foden's, all the boys that, that are coming through now that everybody's wowed about have had this very football dominated existence from a very young age um, in that system. And they take such care now, I think, in the development of young players. And there's so much that goes on to try and make sure that education and mental well-being, all sorts of sort of physical things are, are, are supported for you. There'll be physios on site and strength and conditioning experts and nutritional advice and so on from quite a young age now. And these boys have all come through a, a much more developed system than the kids that were coming through maybe 10 years previously. Saka was a model student. He was one of the, the strongest early. And when they're making their judgments on players, I think sometimes they're very careful to try and give some latitude because obviously, kids develop at different stages and at ages. So for example, Joe Willock did his physical development much, much later, but Bukayo was from the get go, you know, very strong uh, by all accounts. He shone a lot. And in a way the coaches didn't want to get too carried away because he was just great, fantastic left foot, uh, a, a really able learner with a, with a attitude they all praised to the hilt. He was always attentive, always listened to his coaches, always tried to do what they what they wanted and he just progressed very naturally all the way through it was uh, on a pre-season tour i think that he came along often the kids are making up numbers when there's people not back from tournaments or not back to training in time and and straight away when he began to play for the for the first team he was ready i'm sure he's had a lot more football than he anticipated this year i was at the Eintracht Frankfurt game in uh, the Europa League group stages earlier this season, which is where he really, I suppose, took that first 
a step where everybody noticed him. He scored a, scored a great goal and he made another goal. I think, in fact, he maybe got two assists on the night. And it was one of those games where people thought it was going to be a tough atmosphere in, um, in, in Germany with a hostile crowd. And he thrived. And you just see that sense of a young player coming in and, and wanting to express themselves. And it's just been such a fascinating season because of the fact he's played so many different positions. So there's been an evolutionary aspect to it. So he's not just developed on the job in terms of getting used to professional football. He's almost fast-tracked his learning, I think. It felt so critical for him to sign a new contract. I can't overemphasize that. It felt so important for the club to get a young player of that talent come through and potentially him be uh, encouraged to go somewhere else before he's even really signed his first major professional contract would have been quite disastrous, I think, for Arsenal. So that was very, very important because he symbolises something. What's the person like? I mean, I, I know the um, I know the mix zone is a bit sanitised, but you two have presumably dealt with him a little bit at sort of different stages of his emergence. Um, what kind of character are we dealing with here? He just seems like a really well-mannered, well-brought-up, thoughtful, steady kind of a character, which is why I think that um, Mikel Arteta has enjoyed working with him so much. Because when you are a coach and you have some raw material and you feel that you can really mould some, something out of them, everything he's throwing at Bukayo, he's, he's absorbing it all. Like, he's so eager to learn and he's intelligent enough to take things in. And he's very, very respectful. Um, I think he's a God-fearing guy. He comes from a really nice family. Uh, it was pointed out by his youth coaches that his dad was a fantastically good influence on him, made sure that he was always behaving himself. And, you know, we talk about Gendouzi just now being a bit of a hothead and you know, reputation for being a troublemaker or something. Bukai was absolutely the opposite. I don't think he ever, I don't think he had the merest smidgen of a black mark anywhere near his record all the way through the academy. He was just a model student. So that tells you something about how serious he is about making the best of his talent, I think. There were a couple of things that um, he said. He did a sort of interview with Arsenal.com when he uh, signed his new contract. And there were just a couple of moments in it, I thought, that showed you kind of the humility and the self-awareness that he has at that young age. The first was when he was talking and he was very quick to thank Unai Emery for his role in his development and Freddie Jumberg as well, who I think has been really critical to his development. And then secondly, when he was talking about the new contract, he said, I I'm sorry it took so long. And it was just a really touching moment <laughs> of him sort of recognising the fans' anxiety and, you know, showing, I suppose, that, that degree of self-awareness, which I think you don't always find in footballers that young. And Amy's absolutely right. I mean, he, he is a fantastic footballer, but if you speak to anyone who has worked with him, the first thing they will often say is what an incredibly good guy he is to work with. You know, what an incredibly smart and thoughtful and intelligent person to deal with. And that goes a long way in any job, you know. I would like to move us on to talk about recruitment as it relates to Arsenal. Um, it makes sense to me uh, to start with David Luiz. Now, Michael Arteta recently spoke publicly about his desire to keep David Luiz at the club. 
So I wanted to ask you, James, what was that based on? I mean, was it just the most economically sensible route or was there another reason for it? Because he's supposedly an important figure in the dressing room, isn't he? Yeah, very much so. Funnily enough, <laughs> one of the other people that Bukayo mentioned in his interview was David Louise and said, you know, thank right. you for this kind of mentoring role that he's had in the dressing room. And I mean, a lot of the young players have stepped forward and said that and Mikel Arteta's made it very clear himself. That said, I do feel that after the Manchester City game, at the very, very start of Project Restart, uh, not necessarily because of that one match, but because of some of the financial issues the club was dealing with, I think there was a, a prospect of David Luiz possibly not getting that contract extension. I do think certain things maybe forced Arsenal's hand a little. They had a lot of injuries in that period. They lost Pablo Marie for the entirety of, of certainly the remainder of this season and possibly some of next. Uh, and so they kept Louise on. And I think as much as Louise attracts a lot of criticism from the outside, and uh, I, I saw actually Tim Stillman, who's a very good Arsenal writer, positing the theory that da- David Louise's appearance, his hair, means that his errors are highlighted slightly more than certain <laughs> other players. I think they might, there might be something in that. It's like um, Guendouzi and the attitude, isn't it, James? It's yeah, the same principle. It's kind of it's you notice a little principle. bit more if you seem it's, a bit brasher. Yeah. It's Fellaini's uh, clumsiness. You know. <laughs> it's his elbow. It explains yeah. all these things. <laughs> Valderrama wasn't any good. It was just the hair all along. <laughs> but, um, I, 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 but I think despite that, uh, Louise has in periods been one of Arsenal's better centre-backs and I recognise that is slightly slim pickings but Socrates has not had a good season Callum Chambers has been uh, injured he was good when he was fit but he's out long term now Rob Holding looks uh, sadly I think you know not what he was two or three years ago I know he's recuperating from a long-term absence himself uh, Squadra Mustafi has actually been relatively consistent of late but remains Squadra Mustafi a, a good David Luiz is probably the best of the centre-halves Arsenal have available. The problem is, every so often it blows up in your face, and that's been the case throughout his career. So, extending his contract, I can actually understand why Arsenal, in the position they were in, took that decision. Uh, Do I wish it cost them slightly less money? Almost certainly, even if there are reports of a, a wage cut out there. Let me ask you this then, right? Because uh, Seb and I have been talking a lot about um, the structure of hierarchy at Arsenal. Uh, of course, we have Raul Sanyehi, who is, I think, the head of football. Edu Gaspar, sporting director. Mikel Arteta, of course, is, is the head coach. Um, how does this decision-making process work? Who who will have decided that David Luiz was staying? Or is that kind of a joint decision made by uh, those people together? It's a committee, is how it's always framed by the club. Uh, it's a committee that contains... Raul Sanyehi, like you mentioned, the head of football, the technical director, Edgy, the head coach, uh, Hasfami, who is the sort of contract negotiator, former Team Sky guy. Uh, he is involved in that. And I believe that Vinay Van Katersham, who technically is the managing director of the club, looks after sort of the business side, uh, is involved in kind of the financial elements of those decisions too. Um, and then aside from that, there is a scouting department, there is an analytics department, but they are not part of that executive committee make these choices uh, Arteta has a voice yeah I was going to say like if, if Arteta says he doesn't want Louise to stay then presumably that, that is something which is is most of the time you would have thought been respected within the committee or yeah Mikel Arteta I think was pretty categoric that he did want David Louise to stay right. I think that the the opposition just as an example was, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think in that instance, he did want him to stay. And I think the, the queries over it were sort of more from a financial perspective. But to, it, for, for example, if you look at the January transfer business that Arsenal did, say the signing of Pablo Marie, my understanding of the way that worked is that the committee with the scouting department and with their network of contacts, because it is a relatively contact-led approach to transfer business at the club at the moment, presented uh, the head coach and his staff with a series of options. Um, and Arteta made a recommendation based upon those options. Uh, and I don't know if it always works like that, but in that instance, I believe that is how it went. So he is pretty adamant that he will have a voice. And I think if you listen to any of his press conferences, he kind of makes his preferences clear and he makes it very clear that he has a plan of what he wants to do. And he sort of almost, uh, you know, throws the challenge to the club of, are you going to back me? Are you going to commit to me? Are you going to, are the committee going to go with my view? Uh, and I think that's necessary. You want that kind of strong management in a coach because, he is a coach. He's he's not, as Arsene Wenger was, the manager. He doesn't have absolute authority on these matters. But I think given the, the, the esteem in which he's held by Arsenal fans, they'll be pleased to see him fighting his corner, as it were. OK, can I take this one step further as well? Because you just mentioned uh, the idea that Arsenal's recruitment is pretty contacts-led at the moment. And as far as I'm aware... That, that is because that's how Raul Sanyehi likes to work and he has a network of people that, that he's, he trusts and has, has worked with before. But of course, it, it does appear from the outside that that may have created a bit of a division at the club because Arsenal bought, you know, Stat DNA, which has become Arsenal DNA years ago. Um, I think we're the first club to really integrate um, an analysis company in that form into the club and bring it in-house. And uh, that's been successful in, in the past and has always been part of the recruitment process. Do, do you either of you get a sense that there is a bit of conflict between those two different approaches or, or are they working in harmony and I'm making something out of nothing? I think there's almost three approaches, really, uh, that would be uh, ideally uh, blended. One is contacts, which are obviously uh, an avenue that can be very helpful. One is statistics and data, as you mentioned, and the other is the old fashioned eye of, of scouting and the more human touch, which is to do with what you see, uh, finding out about a player's temperament, character and uh, how they're going to uh, adapt. So in a dream scenario, you probably use elements of all three. And I think it's notable, though, that uh, in the last couple of years, there have been people who have left in quite senior positions uh, in two of those three aspects. So Sven Rissentat from the scouting department, who was supposedly going to get sort of technical director role when he joined and that never quite materialised. Uh, he went off to, is now with, with Stuttgart, who have just got promoted back to the Bundesliga. Jason Rosenfeld from what was Stat DNA, who's very highly regarded and I think has gone off to work with Arsene Wenger at FIFA. So the last man standing, if you like, is Raul, Raul Sanyehi. So I, I would have maybe some queries about whether it's the best way to be too much dominated by one avenue uh, because I, I just think it seems sensible in the modern age to be open-minded to include the best of everything and then take your pick accordingly. I'd like to think and hope that Arsenal will still do that but I don't know if there's not a bit too much of a um, dominance against the approach that is Sanya's favourite approach. 
Alex Stewart, whispers tell of Arsenal playing uh, a slightly different formation in recent games. Tell us a little bit about that, please. So they have moved to a three at the back. Um, They've used three at the back twice before this season for games against Leicester and Southampton, who interestingly are two of the teams that they've played since they've restarted and used three at the back again. Um, so I, d- I wonder if there's something in, you know, the fact that, that the setup was familiar for, for those two games back in mid-season. Um, but prior to that, they were mostly using a four-man defence with a double pivot uh, and then a 3-1 attack. So this is basically, um, I think the main reason for it is is they've been looking for increased defensive solidity. Louise has played the last two games as that kind of long-passing central centre-back. Um, he's making the most passes, he's he's progressing the ball the furthest distance of those players. It allows Arsenal to be a little bit more direct. They're looking to exploit the pace of Aubameyang, Pepe or Saka out on the wings. And it takes a little bit of the pressure off the central midfield, um, the, the pivot there of Ceballos and Xhaka, uh, because the wing-backs can push up and, and help out. Interestingly, one of the things they've done, which we have seen teams who play three at the back do before, is to use a fullback as one of the external centre-backs. So uh, against Southampton, they did it with Tierney. In the other games, they've done it with Kolasinac at at left-back. What that means is defensively, they can still line up as quite a classic four-man back line with that left-sided centre-back pushing out to the fullback slot. Uh, And that means that they can transition between these two formations quite fluidly during the course of a game, which allows them to have a nice, you know, low and mid block with four or bring five back. It allows them to push one wing back really high and not the other one if they want to or push both back up. So it's quite a flexible formation, but it also has some additional defensive compensations. Let me ask you this, and maybe this is going to sound like throwing some shades, right? Because uh, David Luiz had a, a difficult start to the restart, let's put it lightly in that sense. David Luiz has been in teams before that have struggled to adapt to playing with four at the back uh, and two centre-backs because he doesn't appear to be a player best suited to just having one other person alongside him. Is it possible that Arsenal have been trapped in the three-man back thing, a bit like Chelsea, and this is maybe the be- you know the, the way of making the best end of what they have? Yeah, in short, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, what's what's quite interesting is that if you look at the passing numbers um, from the games where they've used three at the back, they're bypassing the midfield an awful lot. Um, you know, that the, there have been instances where the, the midfield have played a little bit more, but basically they are looking to go quite long and quite direct. They're exploiting the pace of people like Tierney and, and Saka, but it is also the benefit of Louise is that he's got this ability to pass from deep, whether it's progressively along the ground or or even quite kind of long and lofted passes. But like you say, positionally, he benefits greatly from having the cover of other people around him. Um, So it's it's interesting with this use of a fullback as the the left-sided centre-back that, you know, they can kind of compensate and shift around. But when they're under pressure, so for example, um, with the uh, Inketia red card against Leicester, um, they can then really go to a sort of five-man back line, try and protect Louise and his his positional uh, inadequacies is maybe a good word for it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, Louise is great as, as somebody who kind of carries the ball forwards and, and plays these really good progressive passes. But he's the kind of player who I think because 
he defends a little bit like he attacks like he's very progressive he wants to be on the front foot he wants to go forwards and what that means is it's quite easy when he's in a four-man back line and there's only one other defender covering that for him to be sucked forwards out of position uh, yeah. and bypassed he just he makes those mistakes that i think are uh, at this point in his career, never going to leave his game. Let me ask you a broader question about Arsenal since Arteta arrived, because one of the main criticisms of Arsenal pre-Arteta under Emery was that whilst they performed uh, well at times and poorly at other times, the one thing that was lacking uh, was any sense of sort of tactical identity. Uh, Emery didn't appear to have a an imprint on the team you know and he was known as uh, as the as the technician and he was known as a, as a manager who liked to make small adaptations and, and in some cases be reactive to what the strengths of the opposition were and as a result of that um, and I suppose a few other things as well you just never really felt that Arsenal had a tactical identity under him I know it's not been long under Arteta and I know clearly from recent results that it, you know it's not going as every Arsenal fan would would hope that it is uh, and, and hope that it will be in the future but do you at least see a, a tactical identity? Do you see what Arteta is trying to do? And if so, what do you think of it, broadly speaking? The answer to that question is uh, is at once yes and no. So when he was playing the the four two three one, there was a clear sense of of what he was trying to do. He was trying to bring in a kind of positional play. He was trying to keep possession. Now he's moved to a three four three, which, in terms of the personnel that he has available to him and the ability, for example, to use the the ball carrying and the pace of people like Aubameyang and Saka and Pepe, but with that additional defensive solidity, that makes a lot of sense too. But it's a much more direct style, and it's a system change. So. I suppose the point I'm making is that you can see what Arteta's trying to do with both of those formations and both of those approaches, but they're quite different to each other. Um, so it's a slightly weird change to have undergone at this point in the season because, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, they've profited from it. You know, they've, they've, they've won three and drawn one of their last four Premier League games when they've been using the system. It makes a lot of sense. But it does seem almost like Arteta tried to get Arsenal playing the way that he wanted them to play. And, you know, this is partly based on his coaching philosophy and the people that he's worked with in the past and found that it was patchy at best. And so he's reverted to something which does make more sense in terms of the personnel that they have, but is kind of a quite a significant shift from the way that they were playing before. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. We were talking about the defence before. Talk to me about uh, William Saliba, who is presumably coming back off loan for the beginning of the next season. It's been very interesting. Saliba is a great player. Um, he's a really good defender. He's incredibly mature for a nineteen-year-old. He's got great pace. He's got positional awareness. He's a very proactive defender. He can carry the ball forwards. Um, he takes pretty much as many touches in in the kind of middle third of the pitch as he does the defensive third of the pitch. It's quite difficult to judge how this season has been for him. Um, he played in match days 8-12 to 12 for Saint-Étienne. Uh, they recorded four wins and one draw. Everything was looking great. Then he had an injury problem, um, and all of a sudden Saint-Étienne kind of collapsed. Uh, he's come back in since the uh, post-pandemic restart, and they've been awful. Um, they've lost five, drawn two. So he's he's not become a worse player, but 
he's kind of arrived back into a situation where the, the club was kind of in free fall in terms of their performance in Liga. Which sounds perfect that, for him coming back to Arsenal then, doesn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> Is that yeah, too mean, no, Adonis? Uh, uh, Are you upset about that? <laughs> I, I think that's a bit mean. Um, <laughs> he's got a lot of the qualities that one would look for in a good modern centre-back. So he, you know, he does the defensive basics well. Uh, his tackling is good. Uh, he stays on his feet well. Uh, his positioning is excellent. He scans really well looking for the ball. But he also has this ability to carry it forwards. I think what's also interesting is that Saint-Étienne, uh, he's played in both a three-man backline and a four-man backline for them um, with uh, Claude Puel as their manager currently. So he's shown an adaptability there. If Arsenal continue to switch between those two things, I think that will benefit him because he knows what he's doing in both of those systems. And, and I wouldn't say that he looks uh, any better or worse in either of those two systems. He seems, you know, relatively comfortable both. Um, so, you know, he's a great addition. I think he'll be ready to challenge for a first-team spot, particularly if they, you know, begin next season playing three at the back. I think he would be almost guaranteed to start. Um, but I, I think, you know, that there may be an argument that there's there's been such a lot of hype around him. He has had significant injury problems this season that Arsenal will want to monitor him quite a lot over the break um, and see whether he's kind of ready to to step up to that level and also whether there are any fitness concerns about him doing so. Yeah, OK. Well, something something to be excited about, I think. Uh, uh, a fresh new face. Hey, uh, before we go, um, you've spent the uh, entire week um, watching all of Jamie Vardy's Premier League goals, haven't you? And it struck me that Jamie Vardy, in some cases, is uh, one of the ones who got away for Arsenal. He absolutely did, yes. Um, and Tell me uh, more about that. T- tell you more about that particular Tell me more details route. about what happened, yeah. Yes, well, I believe that Arsenal were, were linked with Jamie Vardy and he said uh, no. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But anyway, uh, that that's video my, will be that's out. That's my analysis. Yeah, good. Real deep stuff. That video will be out at some point uh, in the next week or so. Uh, and it's a, it's a good one, so, so look out for that because um, even if you are a, an Arsenal supporter, it's worth a watch. So last summer, Arsenal completed a deal for central defender William Saliba. He was signed from Zanetian, but has spent the season on loan back in Ligue 1. Um, his return is scheduled for you know, the end of the English season. There's a bit of a conflict going on. Um, James, can you just um, walk us through that? Yes. So although the Ligue 1 season was curtailed, St Etienne have a cup final on the horizon against Paris Saint-Germain. And Saliba's loan deal with St Etienne was due to expire on June the 30th. Uh, Consequently, he, in theory, should be returning to Arsenal. But of course, St Etienne and the player would like to compete in the cup final. So you would think an arrangement could be found. The, the, one of the major hitches was uh, a financial component, which is that if Saliba plays one more game for St Etienne during his loan, Arsenal will uh, be obliged, would have been under the terms of the previous agreement, been obliged to pay, I think it was 2.5 million euros. This was something that was put in place when the loan was arranged to kind of ensure Saliba got game time during his loan spell in France. There were certain sort of trigger points that would mean a financial boost 
to St Etienne. Arsenal were obviously a little bit reluctant to do that for the sake of one game, especially now that the loan contract had expired. They also had certain terms they wanted met in terms of access to Saliba. They wanted to get him over to London Colney to be assessed. They wanted to be absolutely sure that he was fit to play in this final because he's had some injury problems this season and the last thing they want is letting a very, very valuable asset to them, someone who they've invested a lot of money, go and play in a game for another club pick up an injury that means he's not going to be able to compete for them at the resumption of the next Premier League season. Now there's been a lot of back and forth over this and Etienne went very public and were very unhappy with Arsenal's seeming intransigence. Uh, it looked like it was all off, the deadline expired, but the communication coming out from both sides now, from France and from England, is that those talks are ongoing and there is still optimism a resolution can be found. I have to say, I don't know if uh, the financial component will come into it really anymore. And time is running out in terms of the proximity to the final. I think Arsenal's concern will be, can they keep the player happy? Because he'll desperately want to play, uh, balancing that with with any fitness concerns they may have. And Mikel Arteta's made the point in his press conferences that you know this is a guy who has struggled a little bit with injury problems in the last 12 months. And if they can avoid it, they won't want to take too big a risk. So... I think the likelihood is that something is hammered out between them because I just think Arsenal won't necessarily want to take the risk of upsetting a guy uh, just before he arrives. But I do also appreciate that you know they have to look after their own interests too. So it's a, a bit of a balancing act. Long term, I mean, presumably the plan is to involve him in the first team uh, to almost reconstruct the defence around him next season. Is that about right? Well, I mean, Mikel Arteta has been very, very, very cagey in everything he's said about William Saliba. And I think that's very wise because this is a guy who's, I think, 19 years of age now. He's coming into a league he's never played in before. He's got a big price tag on his head. And I think, you know, there is a a natural instinct to kind of manage those expectations. And I commend Arteta for doing that. To, it's not working. To, 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 to sort of, well, listen, I'm part of that problem as well because I went to watch William Saliba. Uh, I think it was late October last year. I watched him play against Monaco. And I have to say, I was thoroughly impressed. I mean, I really was. He, he looked like a, a Rolls Royce of a centre-half. You know, the comparison with Virgil van Dijk is kind of inevitable and slightly lazy, I guess, given how... how fantastic Van Dijk has been this season but he does have that combination of of physicality with grace I mean this is a guy who is good on the ball who can play a 40-yard crossfield pass but is also just absolutely massive I mean that was my first takeaway when I saw him step out on the field he's about six foot three and very broad and when you look at the centre-halves Arsenal have none of them really fit into that category I think Pablo Marie is the only one who's over sort of six foot one uh, and so I do think, you know, he will bring a lot to this defence. Listen, I, I understand why Arteta's playing him down and I'm doing my own best to temper my own expectations. But I've, of course, got my fingers crossed that he can come in and, and do a job because Arsenal have needed a commanding centre-half for such a long time and, and especially since they lost Laurent Koscielny last summer. Um, when you went down to Monaco, where who, which centre-forward did he play against in that game? He played ask. against Wissam Ben Yedder. Uh, who okay. who was very, very much in form. Uh, I think he came into the game on a run of nine goals in eight games and Saliba and St Etienne managed to keep a clean sheet. It was their third consecutive clean sheet. 
Look, their season didn't pan out great. I mean, he is coming from a relegation battle. St Etienne stayed up in France by essentially the skin of their teeth. I don't think we can claim that it's been plain sailing for him out there. But he is playing an exceptionally young team. There's another centre-half in that side. I think his name's Wesley Fofana. He's a similar age to Saliba. So it is a quite an inexperienced central defence in some respects, um, despite the presence of Perrin, who's a bit older. But I, I, I think that his natural attributes are really, really promising. And Arsenal have taken a calculated gamble with him. You know, Arsenal can't afford to go and buy a Virgil van Dijk. They can't afford to go and pay 60, 70, 80 million pounds for a centre-half at this point. So they've looked at him and they looked at him very closely. They looked at the analytics side. They sent scouts multiple times to watch him. And they've decided... We're going to put our money on this guy effectively and hope that he can become that player. I don't think he's going to walk in as that player on day one. I do think we're looking at a situation here where we've got to try and be patient with him and look kind of a couple of years down the line. But it is a calculated risk from Arsenal. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of chips on his shoulders. Fortunately, they are very broad. Let's hope that he can handle the responsibility. Hmm. Well, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but uh, James and Amy, thanks so much for coming. And I would like to say as well that the quality of the work that, that you guys do in your coverage of Arsenal on The Athletic is absolutely fantastic. I would say it's as powerful as the Night King from Game of Thrones, the popular <laughs> television show. The other, the other thing that... I do mean that though. It's honestly, whenever I read stuff about Arsenal on The Athletic, I think these guys have every angle covered. You do such a good job. Thanks very much. As somebody who's never watched a single second of Game of Thrones, I'll have to just take it on trust that that's a compliment. 